0: You may or may not be aware of this, but our, our church has a, a theme verse. Um, it comes from the book of Acts, Acts 17, 11. It's where we get our name Berean. From Paul's travels and his missionary journeys in Acts 17, he got to a place, a town called Berea, and we read this. Now, the Bereans were more noble-minded. Because they received the message Paul was preaching with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures daily to see if, if the stuff Paul said was true. So calling ourselves Bereans comes from that verse, and it's a way of saying we, we examine the, the Bible uh, we, to see if stuff is true. We, we accept that the Bible is our standard of truth. Now, we've never, so that's our theme verse for our church, but we've never, we've never like printed that out and and hung it up on a nice piece of artwork or anything like that. Maybe we should have, but since we haven't, I'm thinking of changing our theme verse to something from our passage that we're going to study this morning. Um, I even went on a website and got, got the, uh, the artwork created. I, I got to check with the elders first. But this, this is going to be our new theme verse. Not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? Now, obviously, obviously I'm joking about hanging that up. But, I'm not joking at all about that being a massively important verse of Scripture. And if I thought that would be understood correctly by everyone who would read it, I would be tempted. It's that important. It's been a couple of weeks because Easter interrupted our our study through the book of Galatians, And where we pick up this morning, where that verse happens, is in chapter 2 of Galatians. And here's where we're at to to sort of get us reacquainted with the text. Um, The Apostle Paul traveled to this region that we now call Turkey. Uh, There was a part of that place that was called the the Roman uh, province of Galatia, and He planted churches there, preached the gospel. And since that time, false teachers have shown up there and are trying to convince people in Galatia, we've listened to Peter and John and James in Jerusalem. And we now know that Paul didn't tell you guys the whole story of how to be a Christian. Sure, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, but there's some other stuff you'd better do or you're not actually justified before God. You're not okay with God. Paul writes this letter to combat the false teachers who are in Galatia saying that we need faith in Christ plus something for God to accept us. So where we pick up, Paul is in the middle of defending himself and his resume. He's going to continue that today. He defends himself only because he doesn't want the message he delivered there to be rejected. If they reject him personally, it's going to be a lot easier to reject his message. So Paul wants to make sure they know he's a capital A apostle on par with Peter and John. And today we're going to read the story of a test. It is a test of whether or not the message Paul preached in Galatia matched the message of Peter and John and James in Jerusalem. That's the story. Uh, Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 where we're going to learn about the danger of requiring even the right things for the wrong reasons. Galatians chapter 2 begins this way. Paul writes, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or might have run in vain." But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also willing to do. That's our passage this morning. Um, We're going to look at that visit, Paul's visit to Jerusalem, this test to see if his message matches Peter's message, because if it does, then the people in Galatia should reject the false teachers that are there, And just stick with Paul's message. And as we think about, organize our thoughts about that visit, we're going to talk about the reason for the visit, the audience of the visit, and the results of the visit. And then we'll see what we can learn about those things. So the reason for the visit, Paul says it's been 14 years, either since the previous visit he told us about in in chapter 1, or maybe it's been 14 years since he was converted to Christ. We're not sure which. But regardless, it's been over a decade, 10 to 14 years since Paul was in Jerusalem. And in that 14 years, because we have the rest of the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, we know what Paul has spent his time doing during those 14 years. He's been traveling to predominantly non-Jewish places. Uh, The Jews called non-Jews Gentiles. So if you, like me, are not a Jewish person, congratulations, you're a Gentile. You and me both. Paul went to Gentile places with the gospel for 14 years. Then we are told in verse 2 that Paul had a revelation. God somehow, supernaturally made it clear to Paul, Paul, you better get to Jerusalem and share the message you've been sharing with Peter and John and James. So, Paul takes a couple of friends with him, a a Jewish man named Barnabas and a, a Gentile man named Titus, and they head for Jerusalem. Paul, I think, because he's defending himself, he makes sure they know it was a revelation that took him there. Because again, Paul doesn't want to make it sound like, Peter called me to the principal's office. Peter ordered me to, to go there. Um, during this passage, it can seem like Paul talks kind of condescendingly about Peter and John and Jesus' half-brother James That's not Paul's purpose. Paul just wants to combat this false idea about him that he's a JV apostle. He's like subordinate to those guys because that's part of the reason the false teachers in Galatia are telling people you don't have to listen to Paul. He's not like a real apostle. We've been talking to the real apostles. but God makes it clear you've got to go share the message you've been preaching with Peter and the boys. So, the main reason he went is because God told him to go. And then, Paul says, I went to share my message with Peter and the boys to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What's that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. When God tells Paul, go to Jerusalem and compare your message to Peter's, Paul is not concerned that he's been sharing the wrong message. That's not a fear at all of Paul's. How can Paul be so sure that Paul has not been sharing the wrong message? Because he heard it straight from Jesus. That's what he said in chapter 1. If anyone knows the gospel, it's Jesus. And Paul heard his message from Jesus. So when Paul says, man, I was nervous that I've been running in vain, he doesn't mean, I thought I might get up there and, and, and learn that I have the gospel wrong. That's not a fear of Paul's. But I think Paul might be afraid, maybe, why does God want me to go up there and compare our messages? I think Paul might be concerned, maybe something has perverted those guys' message. I know I've got the right one. Maybe those guys are off base. Is that why God wants me to go up there? Well, we'll see. It's not. But I think that's what Paul means. Because Paul knows if I get to Jerusalem and I learn that the message I've been given is different than the message Peter and the boys are giving, the church in general has, has real problems. So that's the at least overt purpose for this trip, let's look at let's look at the audience for this trip. We see this several places throughout the passage. Um, Paul goes up there to meet first privately with Jesus's half brother James, um, Cephas or Peter, and John, and that's the disciple John, the apostle John, the the, the the Gospel of John, John. And Paul again, he called. They are pillars in the church. They are very influential men. But again, when Paul says what they were makes no difference to me, Paul's not saying, I don't care about those guys. He's just saying um, they're not over me. I have my own ministry that Jesus sent me on. Um, As far as the organizational chart of the church goes, uh, Jesus is on the top. Paul, Peter, James, John, all those guys are equally on top. Uh, the next level. So that's the that's the audience that he goes to meet with. And from there, from the end of verse 6 through verse 10, we read about the results of the meeting. If you're and if you're concerned that I'm skipping verses 3 through 5, we'll be back. You just wait. The results of the visit are shown in verses 6 through 10. And the results are that Paul's message mas- matches Peter's message and, and John's message and, and James's message. This James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. By this time, we would call him the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So, not, not one of the original disciples, but a very influential man in the church. The results of this visit are, it's the same message. Second part of verse 6 where Paul says, they contributed or added nothing to me, Um, this translation gets it right, they didn't add anything to my message. When they heard what I was preaching, they went, oh yeah, that's right. In verse 7, Paul says, in fact, not only did they not add anything to the message I had been preaching, um, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the exact same message that they taught, they they, they understood the only difference in their message and my message was where it was being preached, not what was preached. In those days, Peter and John and James stuck right around Jerusalem in that area and Paul went into these Gentile lands it's the only, with the same message. Verse 8, Paul says, the same one was working through my ministry and Peter's ministry. The Lord Jesus was empowering both ministries and in verse 9 Paul reports everyone there agreed on these things they 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 shook hands they gave us the right hand of fellowship they were happy James Peter and John they were happy to partner with me and Barnabas on all of our missionary travels taking the gospel to the Gentiles and so Paul's argument on the whole in this whole section is basically this After 14 years of ministry, I went to Jerusalem. I met with the big three. They heard my message that I present to Gentiles. And they came to this, what was for them kind of a shocking understanding. This guy, Paul, who used to hate Christians, he's telling people the same exact message we tell people. Only we didn't teach Paul. Because Jesus did. And so they partnered together. They blessed Paul and Barnabas and said, Carry on. Keep doing what you've been doing. We have the same message from the same source for the same purpose. I'll mention verse 10 only briefly, even though it could be its own sermon very easily. They only requested that when Paul and Barnabas traveled that they would remember the poor and Paul says, no problem, I'm way ahead of you on that one. Um, this is not a, a, an addition to the gospel. This is as you travel, will you remember the poor? And probably the poor they are talking about are the first Christians in Jerusalem. These were almost all Jewish people who were disowned by their families, who couldn't work, and right the Christians in Jerusalem very quickly became very poor. So what Paul would do as he traveled around, he kind of had missions upside down from what we do. Uh, Paul, the missionary, would go out and collect money and send it back to the home church. Instead of us, you know, the, kind of the home church collecting money to send two missionaries, they did it the opposite. So that's probably what verse 10 is about. But taking care of the poor is an ethic of Christianity as well. Okay. I've skipped intentionally the heart of this passage. Verses 3 through 5 is the other reason for this visit. This is like the hidden reason for this visit. I think the reason Paul didn't understand maybe when he took this trip to begin with. Do you remember from verse 2? Why Paul went to Jerusalem? What made Paul go to Jerusalem? Do you remember? A revelation. A vision. God said go. I don't think Paul understood the reason. By the time he writes to the Galatians years later, looking back, I think he goes, Oh, now I know why God wanted this this meeting to happen. God wasn't scared my message and Peter's message was different. He knew the whole time it wasn't. So what was the problem? Well, Paul says, this whole thing arose. Why? Because of the false brothers with false pretenses who slipped in unnoticed to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves or to put us into bondage. Paul says God orchestrated this whole thing because God knew how people would begin to pervert the gospel. God wanted me to be able to point back to this meeting and say, You want to know why up there in Galatia you can believe my my message? Because this whole thing of whether or not my message matches Peter's message has already been tested. We've already done this. And so he tells them this story. And as Paul hears of these false teachers up in Galatia, Paul's like, yeah, this is why God made me go to Jerusalem those years ago. Because the danger, the dangers that come with false brothers who sneak in to spy on our freedom. And put us back into bondage. Now Paul knows why Titus was so important to this trip. Verse three, Paul says, looking back now, it's like Titus was exhibit A for the gospel. And he wants to tell Galatians about Titus. And here's the story of Titus Titus was a Gentile feller, he came with me to that trip. He met with the big three. He met with Peter and John and Jesus' brother James. They knew Titus was a Gentile, which, just, which lets everyone know he was not a circumcised man because he, was, did not, uh, he had not followed Judaism. And Peter and James and John did not say, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You call yourself a Christian, Titus? Not if you're not circumcised. And they didn't require anything to be added to Titus' faith before they accepted him as, as a full-on card-carrying Christian. Now, this is fantastic news for us. You might think it's even better news for Titus, but... This is great news for us. But to understand this, we've got to understand how big of a deal circumcision was for God-fearing people in the first century. I don't know what, um, as maybe if you grew up in church, I don't know what sort of uh, moral, behavioral, or religious behavior issue that you or your family held tight to, but I think it's impossible that they held to it tighter than first century Jewish Christians held to circumcision. We can look at this and go well of course having the males in your household circumcised can't be a requirement for salvation. Like that's no duh. That's silly. But it's silly. It's only silly to us. There there's nothing more biblical than circumcision. We can chapter and verse God commanding everyone during a certain time in, in salvation history. It, you couldn't be one of God's chosen people if the males in your house weren't circumcised. You were supposed to be kicked out of the nation of Israel. It's biblical, it's good. In fact, in another area, I'll save this story for a different day, but Paul says here, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. But in another time, there's a young man named Timothy who's half Jewish. And you know what Paul told him? You better get yourself circumcised. Because for Jewish people in their national identity and culture, circumcision was so important that Timothy's lack of circumcision would be a barrier to the gospel. But where Titus was from in his Gentile uh, area, if he started telling people they had to be circumcised, that would be a barrier to the gospel. I'll say... And when these, I believe, well-meaning Jewish Christians, when they hear Paul say, we, do, we cannot require circumcision to be a part of being a Christian, I don't think they can even make it compute in their heads. Didn't God command us to be circumcised? Yes. So, so help us understand this, Paul. In fact, they don't even get there. They just reject it outright. But here's, here's the danger. Here's the danger. Requiring even good things for bad reasons is extremely dangerous. Requiring the right things for wrong reasons always leads to bondage. Paul is teaching the Galatians that the reason that false teachers are so dangerous is because here's what they're going to do. They're going to take their Jewish culture, which which is from the law, it's biblical, and impose cultural things on other people and say, if you are not matching us culturally, you can't be Christians. And that's always going to lead somewhere extremely dangerous. It's going to be extremely damaging to the gospel. Even if what we require before someone can be considered a Christian, even if it's good, it's going to lead to bondage. It's going to damage the gospel and the gospel's reach. Here's what Paul says. I know why God set this all up because he knew there would be false brothers with false pretenses who would slip into the church unnoticed to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and put us in bondage to those things. That's a, that verse is a good look at what always happens when legalism takes control of a church. Not even takes control, just begins to, to, to do its work, to seep in. I want to remind us what I mean when I talk about legalism. Legalism is the idea that people merit favor or earn favor from God through our behavior. Legalism is the idea that we either establish righteousness or maintain the righteousness we were given by how we act, by religious things we do, by the sins we avoid and the good things we perform. That's legalism. And when legalism takes hold, it can look a million different ways, like a million different things in a million different places. It's always cultural. Always. We laugh at the idea that circumcision would be a requirement for salvation. In that culture, it made perfect sense. When it takes hold... In, let's say, I don't know, a Berean fundamental church, which is what this place used to be called. It looks like this. Ladies, if you came here this morning and you had the audacity to wear pants, you would have been told God is not happy with you based on what you are wearing. Men, if you are not wearing a necktie, like I very intentionally am not today, though I do sometimes because I am free to, um, or a jacket, God is not happy with you. It might be, look like prohibitions against games with dice or face cards, um, mo- attending movies, alcohol or tobacco those are those are kind of ours. but there are other legalistic things. We go to another tradition, just what are the things that if you don't do or you actually do, you will not be considered a Christian. We can go to another denomination, another place, and there are religious rituals that if you don't do, or you are not allowed to do, it's because you're not a full Christian. We can go to a more left-leaning church. Well, surely they're not legalistic. Oh, yes, they are. It just looks like this. If you don't accept everyone, if you don't accept everyone's lifestyle, then you're not like Jesus. You're, not a, you're the one that's not a real Christian because you don't love everyone. It can look a million different ways, in a million different places, but it's always requiring what feels like the right things for the wrong reasons. And it always results in bondage. Because over time, the lists will be created and the lists of what has to be done what can't be done to be a real christian again they can take on many different forms but those lists will be created and over time here's what will happen people will begin to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and put us to make us slaves to put us in bondage bondage to what to the lists to the lists. The church corporately, individuals within each church will start looking for those who are acting out of line with our lists. Legalism always looks to protect those lines, enforce those lines, always. And here's why it's so dangerous even if those lines are actually morally good things. Because it damages the gospel toward people who are both outside the church and inside the church. When legalism takes hold, it will damage the gospel's effect on people outside the church and people inside the church. And I want to explain why that is. First, um, we'll look at folks outside the church. The lines that legalism establishes will become so part of our culture that we will we will confuse what conversion means. Conversion will actually mean converting from your current lifestyle to this one we have here. And that can be a massive barrier. What will happen is the outreach of a church will be primarily toward people who already have a lifestyle sort of like the one we accept here. We're already good, hardworking, conservative folks because, well... Let's go back in the ancient world. Do you think it would have been a barrier for somebody like Titus to understand who Jesus was, that he died on behalf of Titus' sins, that he rose again? And then here, yeah, but before you can be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Would that be a barrier? It would. Do you think Titus would be like, oh, I just don't know if I can get there? That is exactly why the church has been such a terrifying place to unwed mothers. To people with substance abuse issues. To people who struggle with sexual sins that are different than the sexual sins that somehow are okay according to our lists. Because without knowing it, a church will present what the list is. What, a, what being a Christian means. And someone out there will look at that list and think, there's no way. Either I'm already, I've already blown that. Or I don't think I can get there. Or they'll try to use their hard work and effort to get there. To a level of righteousness, which is the most, so they're accepted, which is the most anti gospel thing I could ever say. And do you hear what's happening there is when they look inside and think, oh, I'm not good enough to go there, they're so close to the gospel. Because the first thing we have to realize before we can accept Christ is, I'm not good enough, right? That's what we claim. Until we find someone, not that's less righteous than him, but someone who's less righteous than us. But it doesn't just do damage to those possible people who might come but now won't. It does damage to people inside the church as well. And here's why. In all churches, wherever their lines are, once we have defined this is what a good Christian looks like as soon as someone conforms to those things, whether it's religious rituals that you do at this church, whether it's dress codes at this church, whether it's loving everyone at that church, as soon as someone gets to the point where they've been converted to what a good Christian looks like, they think, I am nailing this Christianity thing, and they may not know Jesus. That's why the church in America is full of lost people who think they're redeemed. Because we have legalistic standards of what it looks like if we're a Christian. Legalism winds up. Sort of making some feel unworthy, making most feel unable except for like the select few either in this in our denomination or the select few within our church and everyone else falls short because we've been converted and we put, a, we or a church will just put people in bondage to those it's what we're trying to convert people to. And it seems so spiritual. It seems so Christian. But it keeps lost people away from Jesus, even though some of those people don't think they're lost. You know, I've used this analogy before, but it's so true and so important. When I was coaching, what kept uh, young boys from getting started in the weight room was what? It's really hard to be the weak kid in the weight room. Do you know what makes it so hard to be the weak kid in the weight room? The strong kids in the weight room right? Who want to make themselves feel like they're really somebody because I'm the strongest kid in the weight room. Even though we could take our weight room and the kids in our weight room and take them to Gold's Gym on Venice Beach or whatever and find all these big burly hulking dudes and we could find out. Turns out none of us are the strong kids in this weight room. But right within our weight room, my goal is to be the strong kid so I can look down on the other. Man, the church for so long has been such a hard place to be the weak kid. Even though we know God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Like we know that. We say that. But we tend to compare ourselves as far as our moral strength and our behavioral righteousness to the lists we hold dear and think we're killing this Christianity thing. When maybe, just maybe, in a different way, we're kind of killing this Christianity thing in our community. Because... The righteousness we always must compare ourselves to is God's holiness. And that's what reminds us we're all the weak kids. And that's okay. That's okay. God loved you when you were at your worst. But Pastor Matt, how do we talk about sin? Come back for the next two weeks and we'll start to talk about that. This is why Paul said, we wouldn't surrender to them even for a moment. Why? Because so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Folks, if we need anything, we need the truth of the gospel to remain in us and with us. Here's the truth of the gospel. You're not good enough for God to like you based on how good you are. Someone in here sins the fewest sins of everyone in here. I don't know who it is, but someone has to. Please don't raise your hand. This would be a bad time to raise your hand. But it's true. I don't know who the best person is in here who sins the fewest sins. Probably whoever one of us sleeps the most would be my guess. Now you can raise your hand. I don't, I don't know who the best person is in here, but they're not good enough based on their behavior to be acceptable to God because we are the weak kids who've been adopted by the strong kid. The actual strong kid came to the weight room not to show us how strong he was and condemn us, but to say, hey, why don't you lift with me? Come on. We're adopted because God killed the strong kid and accepts us based on his righteousness and then just says, now, do this life thing with me. You're still going to blow it because you're still a weak kid. But I'll walk with you that we need the truth of the gospel to remain in us. It's the only way we're going to reach out to people who need Jesus and walk with them through the million different ways they grow, through their version of weakness and how they walk with us through ours. And it, it can begin to create a culture where I don't have to hide my weakness so much. Do you know why we won't confess sin? Because we know we won't be accepted. that's not the way this should work in Christianity there's this beautiful thing confession is when things get better when you grew up with your parents confession was when you got punished because they didn't know and when you confessed they found out and you got punished we can talk about parenting another time, whether or not that's right or wrong, or how to do that with grace. But listen, with God, it's not like that. When you confess to God, God's like, I know. I'm so glad you're telling me. We need the truth of the gospel to remain with us. It's the only way the gospel can do its work out there, in here and in here. Let's keep working to do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you love the weak kids, because that's who we are. We're so grateful that you have done everything it takes to make us appear righteous in your eyes. What a miracle that is. God, uh, we will talk about how to how to deal with sin how to talk about sin but for now will you just help us understand the gospel more and more how much we need it more and more that our love for you might grow more and more and that the gospel might reach into southwest Nebraska and northeast Colorado more and more. And if you would use us as you glorify yourself that way, we, we sure would love that, Lord. We, we love you. You loved us first. We love you back. Love your weak kids. Imperial Berean Church, we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand up and we'll finish our time together this morning.